All right, everybody, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and grab that, and let's open to the book of Nehemiah chapter 3. So Nehemiah chapter 3, and that will give us a starting point for our time today. We're not going to only or solely be in uh, chapter 3 of Nehemiah today, but it's going to give us a good framework and a context from which uh, to, to work this morning. So uh, if you were here last week, uh, you noticed that we kind of made the change from the headset to the handheld halfway through. And so I thought, why not just get a head start and we'll just start with a handheld again first thing today. So uh, thanks for being flexible with me. So if you are here in the room with me, Von Forrest, if you're watching online, listening later on in the week, uh, I want you to know that this is such an honor. It is not lost on me. It is a big deal for me to get to open God's Word with you to say, this is what God's Word says. And in a sense, this is what God has to say to you. And so you have been prayed for, and you are being prayed for even right now in these moments. And so uh, we're in the book of Nehemiah. What I've said before, let me say again, we're in this series. We're taking a slow walk through the book. It's written by Nehemiah. It's about not just his life, but the story of God's people. And I like series. I like preaching in series. I like preaching in series, not just a, a one-off standalone sermon. It gives us time to unpack, to take, uh, to take our time, to say this is a large idea. It's going to take more than just 30 minutes on one Sunday morning to get to. So let me start out and just by, by saying this. Let me give a disclaimer, all right? This is not an apology because I will never apologize for anything that's in the Bible because everything that's in the Bible is in there because God put it in there. And if God put it in there, we don't apologize for anything. Uh, but this is a disclaimer. It's not an apology. It's more of an acknowledgy than an apology. I made that word up this week. So, um, made a commitment to you guys. We're going to go straight through the book of Nehemiah from start to finish. And that's what we're going to do, Lord willing. And that being said, here we are in Nehemiah chapter 3. And Nehemiah 3 is something. It is something else. Um, uh, it's, it's good, uh, but you know, Last week, if you were here, if you listened, last week I told you uh, what Nehemiah was intending to do is that he was gathering people, he was gathering support, help, workers, and that he was going to put together a 40-unit plan to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And so chapter 3 of Nehemiah is that 40-unit plan. It's like a 40-step uh, 40 checklist so this morning, over the next two and a half hours, the 40 points of today's sermon, oh, I'm just kidding. So um, it's, it's, it's a list, and this is like trying to understand the heart of your wife from looking at a grocery list. Uh, this is like trying to get to like what's, what's really going on, because we just have like a list of things that need to be accomplished by specific groups of people. Why is this detail in the Bible? Where is God's heart in this? If you've ever been a part of a Bible reading plan, you'll note that there are parts of Scripture that just give us information. And these parts of Scripture, again, God put them, He included them in our Bibles for a reason. And it's not just for us to gather information. It's also for us to see His heart in why they're there in the first place. So something happened to me this week. Something happened as I was studying, preparing, praying, getting ready for this message, and 
I just kept going back to like what I was taught early on by my grandfather is that if you need to really understand what's going on in a text of the scripture, you just read it. You read it, you reread it, you read it out loud. You just get to know that text. Let it get down inside of you. And as I was reading Nehemiah 3 over and over again this past week, something happened. God spoke. He revealed to me that there are some truly profound things, not just included in the list, in the 40-unit plan that Nehemiah is delivering and what's about to happen and who's going to do what and how's it going to be accomplished. It's not just the information that's in the plan. It's that God included it in the scriptures to begin with, and that's profound. God revealed to me some profound insights about work. About work. And work is not something necessarily that is the topic of many Christian sermons. I don't know how many times you've been to church on a Sunday morning and heard a sermon specifically devoted to work, but work is where we will spend a majority of our lives. Do you know that for the average man or woman, we will spend the majority of our lives, we'll do a lot of sleeping, we'll do a lot of working. That's where we'll, so this sermon is not about sleeping. You might go to sleep during the sermon, but this sermon is about work, about how it matters and how it matters to God. And if it matters to God, it should matter to you. I wonder if you remember your first job. You remember when you started to work. And work can mean all kinds of things. Work doesn't necessarily have to mean like the job you started when you graduated from college or when you began your own business. Uh, work can mean all kinds of things to different people, uh, different seasons, work looks different. So let me do this. This is not, this is not me just being, uh, I'm, I'm not being patronizing when I say this. This is really sincere uh, to every Mom, to every stay-at-home mom who's in the room, who's listening this morning, you win, okay? When we talk about work, you win. You work harder, you work more than anyone else could ever dream about, all right? So you win, you're the best. The rest of us, we're just figuring out silver medal, all right? So, uh, but for those of you who are doing something else with your life, your career energy is aimed in a different direction, do you remember your first job? Remember how excited you, I was so excited for my first job. I don't know what yours was. Maybe you started out by cutting lawns in the neighborhood to raise a little bit of money, or you started babysitting for some friends of your, your parents or in your small group, or maybe you worked at a fast food restaurant. I don't know what your first job was, but I don't know what mine was. My first job was at Millstone Golf Club. And Millstone was a new golf course that opened up and they were hiring people to come and work at this golf course. And so at the age of 14, they hired me to work at Millstone. I don't know if it's legal to hire 14 year olds, but they did it. And my job at working at the golf course was to, this is glamorous, right? I was cleaning bathrooms. I was cleaning golf carts. There was a head professional there who every day asked me to clean his clubs. And I was so excited to get to have that privilege. What a weirdo. Uh, I mean, like, I, I loved work. I loved going to work. I loved the fact that I had a uniform. I had an official polo and a hat that I got to wear as being a part of the workforce there. In the school year, I'd get dropped off after school because, again, 14 years old, I had to get a ride to my first job. So I'd get dropped off about four o'clock and I'd work four till dark. In the summer, all day, all day long, as much as I could. The perks to this job were incredible. Every day, if you worked, you got a free hamburger, like from the grill. They would give you just for showing up to work. Like in addition to the money they paid you, you got free food. So this is a sweet gig. I'm working outside around a golf course, getting free food, the life 
could not get any better for 14-year-old Brett. At that time, I made minimum wage. And when I say minimum wage, I mean back when minimum wage was actually minimum. Am I right? I mean, this was like very minimal amounts of money. But this was, in my mind, this is what you did. Like when it was time, when you were able, if you could, like to me, it's like, you'll hire me? I can't believe that. And so to me, it wasn't like I was made to go to work. Like work to me seemed non-negotiable. Like here's how it worked in my house. If I wanted something or if I needed to get something, then the first thing I needed to get was a job. Like that's how it worked with with my family. And so there is, there's some theology there. There's some theology to how you spend your life and what you think about when you think about work. And if we're not careful, church, if we don't take our time, we will think of work as just a way for us to provide for our families. And it's so much more than that. Work is so much more than just a way to make yourself comfortable. Work is so much more than just earning wages. Work is worship. Work is worship. I want to argue that all morning long. Work is worship. What do I mean? Chapter 3 of Nehemiah is all about the different groups of people doing different jobs to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Chapter 3 is how they came together. They completed a task bigger than themselves because they all worked and they worked together. But don't, don't miss it, okay? This is so easy to skip over. Take your time. Do you know why they were there? Like, do you know why the people were there in the first place? Why did, this is foundational to your understanding of this book of the Bible, why did Nehemiah want to go back and rebuild the wall? Why was it? Why was he so confident Why did Nehemiah have favor in the eyes of the people and in the eyes of the king? Why was it that even in the face of direct opposition, political opposition, Nehemiah did not turn away? Why were they there? Because God sent them there. God sent them to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. God sent them there. Look at verse one of Nehemiah chapter three. The scripture says, then, Nehemiah speaking, uh, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. That's not it. Chapter three, verse one. Here we go. Rough start. Chapter three, verse one. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. This is God's word. The work was consecrated. It was consecrated. And consecrated is an important word. What does that word actually mean? To consecrate means to devote yourself to a purpose or to declare something as being sacred. So to consecrate means that you're going to devote yourself wholeheartedly to this purpose or that you're going to declare this as Sacred, And we'll come back to that word consecrate in just a minute, but that's what the people were doing here in Nehemiah 3.1. They were intentionally, 
in the sight of God, not at secret, not at night, not hiding their work, not embarrassed. They were in the sight of God and everyone else saying, what we're devoting our lives to is a purpose bigger than ourselves. What they're doing is a declaration. They're declaring that what's about to take place, it's important. It deserves their attention. It deserves their energy. They were consecrating what though? The work. They were consecrating the work itself. And do you know why they were doing that? You know why it's not odd for them to declare work as sacred? It's not just because it has to do with Jerusalem or a particular part of God's sacred city. The reason they're able to declare this work as sacred is because, number one, work is from God. Work is from God. When I say that, I mean work is God's idea. Some of you, when you think about where you're going to go tomorrow morning and maybe who you're going to see when you get there tomorrow morning, you think, no way, man. Like, I, you know, I hear you, maybe for Nehemiah, maybe for preachers, but I don't know about my job. Not me, not my boss. Okay, maybe, but let me press you a little bit. All right, so Genesis 2.15. This is the origin story for all things. Genesis 2.15 says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Genesis 2.15 is God's placing his created image bearer, Adam, in the garden. The garden of Eden is perfect. Like it's absent from the presence of sin. The tempter Satan is not there. This is before our enemy even shows up. And God places his first son, Adam, in the garden and says, work. And that's not punishment because Adam had not yet sinned. Let me show you something amazing about this verse. Genesis 2.15, let me read it again. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it. That word work is interesting. The word work in Hebrew is the word abod. That's the Hebrew word for work. And that word abod means to tend to. So the same way that you would tend to your garden, that's what abod means. So to work is to tend to. What is tend to? It means to intentionally give attention and affection and devotion. What God is commanding Adam to do is to live where God said to live and do what God said to do, to work, to tend to this creation. But the, word Hebrew, the Hebrew word abad is not just present in our idea of work or tending to something. The word abad is the root word for worship. So worship is incredible. Matt and your team, like our band here, worship is unbelievable. Like it's so good. Like you walk through those doors and we are ushered into the presence of God. And when we think about worship, we think about it as that's the three songs before the sermon and then maybe one afterward. Or maybe when you think about worship, you think about a section of a playlist that you have when you stream music or it's your favorite, uh, it's your favorite worship leader or your favorite church band or your favorite music. It better be Vaughn Forrest, right? But like whatever the case is, you think about worship and you think about singing. Is singing worship? Yes. Is worship only singing? No. The Hebrew word abad is the root word for worship, which means this. When we put our attention on what God has said do, that's how we worship God. 
What am I saying? When you work, when you tend to, what God has told you to put your hand to, that is worship. When you tend to what God has told you to put your hand to, that is worship. Your work is worship to the Lord, all of it. Let me talk to the teachers in the room. You are my heroes, but your work is worship. The way you teach, the way you shape and mold young minds, your classroom, that's worship. It's worship to the Lord. Your position Your rank, sir, in the unit where you serve, your work is worship to the Lord. Your practice, that office that you oversee and manage, that corner office that you occupy, or even your cubicle, your practice is worship to the Lord. Your boardroom, your Zoom meeting, your side hustle, it's all worship to the Lord. It's your way of giving your attention to what God has given to you. What you do matters. And let me add quickly. So we're talking about work and there are basically two cautions that I need to give you when it comes to work. There's an old Irish proverb that goes like this. It says, uh, for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch. I love that. I'm a visual, simple person. And so that makes sense to me. For every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch. What that means is this. If you're driving along or making your way down a path, you're not just staying away from one side. In fact, you need to have boundaries on either side of the road so that you don't go too far in either direction. What does that mean when we talk about work? So for some of you in the room, you came to church today or you clicked the link. What you need to be reminded of is this. Your work has value Your work matters. Your work is given to you from God. That every space that you occupy, when you clock in or when you are giving your career energy, that is from the Lord. Like it matters. It's worship. It's how you tell God he's great. It's how you tell him thank you. That work is worship. That's some of you. But for some of you in the room, you need to hear me caution the other direction. Some of you, what you need to hear this morning is not work is from the Lord. What you need to hear is work is not your Lord. Work is not your Lord. Yes, I mean, I mean, I mean, just because you have a strong work ethic, just because you can crush it, because you can earn, because you're making more than your parents ever thought about making, hear my heart when I say this. Even if what you're doing is noble, even if it's honorable, even if you're conducting yourselves in a way that honors Jesus, let me me raise my hand on this one because a lot of my work has to do with studying and teaching the Bible and it's possible for me to make work my Lord. Here's what I know. There can come a point when work gets so much of your focus, it gets so much of your attention It gets so much of your life. There can come a point when work becomes an idol. And here's what I know about idols. Idols always require a sacrifice. Idols always require a sacrifice. So what I'm telling you this morning is that when you make work your Lord, it's more than just a you problem. More than you is just suffering when you make work your Lord. You are sacrificing something Probably someone or a group of someones. Something has to be sacrificed on the altar of being a workaholic. Work is from the Lord. Work is not your Lord. 
Work is worship. And if work is worship, then we have to, all of us, everybody in the room, we have to acknowledge the fact that we have the possibility of worshiping the wrong things. Work is not punishment. Work is not punishment, nor is it your idol, but work is from the Lord. We see that. It shows up. The reason that God included all of the different jobs and all of the different people groups in the book of Nehemiah, some of them worked on the gates, some of them worked on the pools, some of them worked on the towers, some of them worked with the bricks. God gave all kinds of people all kinds of jobs. But the reason of of taking a moment to, to say that and note that is because the people of God are working to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and that work is from God. Here's something else profound. Something else I noticed just by reading and rereading this chapter. That's a list. It's functionally just a description of what's going on. Here's what else I noticed. You ready? Nehemiah is not alone. Nehemiah is not working by himself. He's not alone. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people and groups represented. Here's what I mean. Work is from the Lord. And we should work with unity in community. We should work with unity in community. Um, just by, for sake of full disclosure, um, really, like talking, that's all I've ever done. Okay, like this is, this is the whole story. Like, uh, you know, I, I played sports, but I mostly talked, all right? So um, I'll tell you. Okay, so when I, was, when I was 13 years old, I was part of this thing at my school called Beta Club. I don't know if you're aware of that. If you, like, if you lead that at your school, great, great job. Um, but I was part of Beta Club. Beta Club, if you don't know or are familiar with it, it's an academic organization where if you have a certain level of grades, you get to be a part of this club. But the best part about Beta Club is that every year they would have a statewide convention in, uh, in the state capitol. And there were different categories that you could actually compete against other beta club members to go and, you know, uh, compete at the state beta club convention. And so I promise you, I have been a dork my whole life. And so when I was 13 years old, I went to the state beta club convention competing in the speech competition, and I won. Yeah. So let me deliver to you Nobody clapped. That's okay. Don't clap now because I don't want pity applause. All right. But let me deliver to you the opening line of that year's winning speech. Here's what I said. Unity through diversity. How can we be unified and yet different? That's profound. Only to a 13-year-old is that profound. Uh, when I wrote that, I thought that was the most incredible sentence ever written. That is a nothing burger of a sentence. That sentence means nothing. And here's why I bring that up. A, because I want you to know me. Secondly, B, because we can't just throw around, or throw around words like unity and community in sing-songy phrases and kind of slogans and jargon, and we don't really know what we're talking about. Like, this is not just the time for me to say, isn't it amazing when all the believers work together? It's such a beautiful mosaic. Like, that's not the point. Like, when we say work in unity, it means work in cooperation, like get along with the people you're working with because you are part of something bigger than you too. You are a part of the family of God. If you're a part of this church, you're a part of the body of Christ. 
So we work in unity. We work with unity in community. And what I want to do is not just give you some flowery language and promote the idea of unity. What I want to do is give you some practical steps. How can you do it? How can you actually be a faithful member of your community? How can you contribute to seeing your faith community flourish? Here's what your community needs you to do, okay? This is the call in your life. A, work hard. Just work hard. Proverbs 14, 23 says, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Translation, talk is cheap, but hard work always pays off. And you know this, as you live and breathe, in our world today, the bar has been set so low. Here's what will set you apart. This is what will get you noticed. This is what sets you apart from the majority of all employees and the rest of the workforce. You ready? Do what you say you're going to do. That's it. If you say you're going to do something, follow through. Have you recently done any work on your house or had people come and work at your house? Or dare I say, a total rebuild. Have you had a contractor that you've had to try to get to come to your house at a specific time? It's miserable. It's totally miserable to get somebody to show up and tell you how much it's gonna cost and then actually do it in the amount of time that they say it's gonna take is a miracle, a wonder of wonders. I have had this temptation recently to go, there is so much money to be made. If I wanted to go to night trade school and learn how to do some of this stuff that I can't figure out on YouTube, I could make a lot of money just by showing up when I say I'm going to show up. Just do what you say you're going to do. Work hard. Show up. This should be our trademark. Christians, this should be our reputation. We should be known as the hardest working, most honest, most dependable people on the planet. Seriously, there should be a class action lawsuit against numerous corporations because they will only hire Christians. And the reason they'll only hire Christians is not because they pray before their meal, but because Christians do what they say you're gonna do and they work hard. So if you wanna be a part of the faith family community and work in unity, first, work hard. Secondly, have integrity. Have integrity. Proverbs 11.3 says, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. What does that mean? It means I need to talk to you for a second. Christians, we don't cut corners. We don't cut corners. We don't take advantage. We don't take shortcuts. And do you, do you know that thing? You know what I'm talking about? That thing at your job? That thing that you can do and nobody would really even know that you were doing it? And if you did it, you would probably get away with it. And if you got away with it, you'd probably get an advantage over somebody else or make a little bit more money. And maybe you've been doing it for a while and now and it's just kind of become routine. It's become ex accepted to you as part of like, this is just what it means for me to go to my job. That you don't think of it as, as stealing from the company. You don't think of it as, as cheating. You don't think of it as a violation of your integrity. I mean, I mean who, who notices this stuff, right? I mean, I mean, they've got it. I mean, you know, like they've, they've got it. They've got it to spend. So 
you know, I mean, don't you deserve it anyway? I mean, you work hard. You've worked there for so long. I mean, you've been passed over. You don't make enough. You don't make enough for what you do or how long. I mean, come on. I mean, is it going to cost anybody anything? Is it really? Like, is it actually going to cost anybody anything? Let me tell you how much it costs. It costs more than you are willing to pay. And here's how I know that. Do you know what costs more than you are willing to pay? The look in your children's eyes when they find out that you are a liar and a thief. You don't want to owe that. You do not want to pay that. You don't want to walk around with the distrust that you feel and the shame that you carry because you didn't think anybody would notice, and they did. And then you got caught. You don't want that story. Look at it. You don't. You don't want that to be true of you. And I'm not a weird mystical guy who does this a lot, but I'm saying this right now for you in the room. I'm saying this for you. Yes, I mean, I mean, I'm saying that that thing you're doing, that thing that if you got caught, that it would go really bad for you. This is me as an advocate from the Holy Spirit asking you to stop. I'm asking you to stop because it's not worth it. It's not worth it. When you are unfaithful, you will get destroyed by it. Jesus followers, people who claim the name of Christ for salvation, those of us who have been set apart as holy, we are called to and we hold ourselves to a standard that is higher than anything that could be found in some random training manual. We want to work hard and we want to work with integrity because we're a part of a plan. We're a part of God's plan. We're a part of God's plan for everything. We're a part of God's plan to take dominion. What did God say after creating man and woman in his own image? Genesis 1, And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what's known as the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate is this, to exercise dominion over the earth, to subdue it and develop the earth's potential. Here's your calling as a human being because this calling is for all humans. Anybody who's made in God's image, your call is to fill the earth with his glory and to create what's called culture. And whether it's your 2,000 square feet or your back 40 acres, God has given you a place. God has given you a section of this earth to transform in his name and for his glory. That's what it means to take dominion. And this is not just for people who are in ministry. This is not just for people who are pastors or missionaries. So many, so many of us, like when we think about those with a calling, we think that calling only in, applies to pastors or people in full-time professional ministry. It doesn't. There is not a sacred and secular divide when it comes to your work. Like there's not a difference. What I do is not any more holy than anything you'll do tomorrow morning. In fact, do you know the only one of us in the room who will not have a job in heaven? Me. Work is from God. We work in unity 
with community. We, that's how we work. And we are called to take dominion. And there's not a sacred, secular divide. All of the work that you do, every bit of energy you give, that is sacred energy. All work can be sacred. All work can be sacred. Let me take us back to the first verse of Nehemiah 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, so it's his job. Like it's his job to serve as an advocate for the people. This high priest was the man who would go before the actual presence of God. He would offer atoning sacrifices. He would communicate with God on behalf of the people. And so as the work begins, the high priest, Eliashib, he rose up with his brothers, the priests. And what did they do? They built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. They declared, what we're doing is sacred. All the bricks and the hinges and the gates and the shovels and the trowels and everyone who would hold them were all consecrated, set apart as sacred. So the question we have to answer is, am I like you? Are you set apart? Has there, has there been a point in your life where you have acknowledged Christ as Lord, as we've talked all morning about what it means to be a Jesus follower and, and how Christians think about work differently and how we approach the idea and concept of work differently. Are you set apart? And by set apart, I, I, all I mean is this. It's not are you special or do you never sin or do you have total integrity? When I ask if you're set apart, here's what I mean. Has there come a moment in your life where God has declared you his? where you've asked God to save you from your sins and to declare you as holy. That's what it means to become a Christian. You can't declare yourself sacred. You can't declare yourself perfect. You have to be declared holy by God who is holy. That's what he does. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it tells us that the exchange we make with God is that he gives to us his righteousness and we give to him our sin. God made him who is holy to give to us his righteousness, that we might know the righteousness of God. So when you enter into relationship with Jesus, that's all it is. That's God setting you apart. That's God declaring you holy. And I wonder if you've ever experienced that before, very honestly. I wonder if there's ever been a moment, not in an emotional way, not in a revival or VBS, or even just as part of your religious upbringing, but have you ever experienced the life and eternity changing power of meeting Jesus and being set apart as sacred? If not, I would encourage you to. The second question you have to answer is this. Do I treat my work as sacred worship? Do I feel like when I get into my truck or into my car tomorrow morning, I'm on my way to a worship service? Am I on my way to give honor and glory and praise to the one who called me out of darkness and into glorious light and has set my feet on this place for this time in this way so that I can bring glory and honor to his name? Do you see your work as sacred worship? 
And then finally, I'd ask you an honest and sobering question. Are there some things that need to change? Are there some, are there some ways in which you are treating your work that are outside the boundaries of what it means to live a life of integrity? Is there something that you need to stop today? I beg you to. I beg you to because the cost is too high. Church, would you stand to your feet so that I could pray for us? Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you have decreed that work is something that's from you. You have given us something to tend to, God. God. You don't leave us as bored. God, you've given us part of, part of this earth and you've given us people that we get to steward for a minute, that we get to cultivate and tend to. We get to give glory to you, God, through our work. God, for those of us who need to confess, confess you as Lord for the very first time or confess some sins because there's some areas of our life that do not, they do not line up. They don't match up. It's not what it means to be a man or woman of integrity. God, help us to have the courage and honesty to do so. God, help us to see tomorrow morning not just as something that has to be endured, but as an opportunity that we can seize so that we can give honor and glory to Jesus Christ. Help us to do that, to worship in his name. Amen.